I'd like to begin by reading our text, 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21. This is what the Word of God says. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You'll notice uh, that we are in the final laps of our study of 1 John. And these final laps are kind of like the last laps of a NASCAR race. They look a lot like the first laps, don't they? And in 1 John, similarly... Uh, the last things that he has to say are much a repetition of what he has already said. And so as we preach and teach through the, through the book, the challenge is to uh, emphasize again what he is emphasizing because the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that, but then also to uh, mine for some of these little uh, nuggets of truth. And you remember last week we did exactly that. It was a long, longer section in which he repeats what he's already said. And we took a look very specifically at verse 18. That was our golden nugget truth last week. That perfect love casts out fear. And we talked about how uh, fear and love are mutually exclusive. And that what John has to say there is this, is that all fear is related to a future fear of punishment. But that perfect love, the perfect love of God in Christ, for us satisfies that future fear with love and the sure knowledge of God's love being uh, there for us for all eternity, which alleviates our present fears as well, so that we are free then to live courageously and to live fearlessly in a world filled with phobias and anxieties. Now, our treasure truth this week is verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And we're going to get to that. But before we do, I want to... uh, I want to quickly take a look at some of the other things that he says here in a section largely of repetition, but with a few little nuances. Now, the main truth largely that he is developing here is the evidence, that the evidence of salvation, one of them, which is the social test. Do I love my brother or sister or not? And you notice that he says, if somebody makes the claim, I love God. And aren't there a lot of people that make that claim? Oh, yes, I very much love God. I'm all about God. I live my life for God. Love God. God. All about Him. If I make that claim, but then in my life, in the way that I relate to the people in my life, where I am not loving them, rather, he says, I am hating them. He says, you're a liar. Not lying about the fact that you hate people. That is very sincere and genuine. In fact, you can know something about hatred. It is always genuine, right? It's always sincere. Criticism is always sincere. But love and claims to love, you don't necessarily know if those are sincere or not. And remember the context here. John is writing to a church that has just gone through a split in which some false teachers 
uh, became prominent in the church, began teaching things contrary to the Apostle Paul, gathered a group of people around them, and they basically said, hey, you know what, we're out of here. And they went down the street, started their own gig. They didn't, they didn't care about damage to the church. They didn't care about relationships. They didn't care about love. And John says, if you want to know who's genuinely saved and who's not, that is what hatred looks like. And no matter what you claim about loving God, if that's the way that you're acting and treating God's people, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. Okay, so there is that social test again. Love is not simply something we do uh, if we want to or not. As Christians, we do it as a byproduct of God's love to us, which is why John can say so clearly it is a genuine evidence of salvation. One commentator says this, I liked it, where someone claims to be a Christian but has no time for fellowship with others, criticizing the church and writing it off, practicing a solitary devotion, do we not have to ask whether that person is deluded and whether God really does live in him? Where the life of God is at work, it sweetens bitterness, melts hardness, and multiplies love. So how do you know if somebody's a Christian or not? Well, one of the ways that we can tell is in the way that they treat people and the attitude they display towards brothers and sisters. And John here gives the illogic of the person who claims to love God but hates his brother. He says, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what he is doing here, he's he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If I can't love the visible expression of the image of God that is before me, then I can't love the God that I can't see. You see that? Now, this is the challenge, of course, in the church, because it is much easier to love a theoretical God than actual people. Because when you love actual people, you have to deal with their annoyingness. And you have to bear with their failures. And you have to deal with all of their idiosyncrasies. Which in the church, there are a lot of idiosyncrasies. I'm talking about you, yes. And your little idiosyncrasies, which seem to you to be normal, but to the rest of us is weird. Yeah, you. Mostly Mostly it's the balcony, but uh, no, I'm kidding. All love to you all up there, truly. Uh, So you see the logic then. If I can't love the person that I can actually see, that I can hug, that I can uh, give to, that I can seek to minister in a practical way, if I can't love the visible person, how can I love a God that I can't see? And we can't see God. God is spirit. And yet, all God's children bear his image. And so when we love, this is what Jesus said uh, also. He said, uh, whatever you do to the least of these, you've done unto me. It's the same logic. What we do to one another is an expression of our greater love for God. And if I claim to love God, but I don't love his children, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. And probably not saved, is what John is saying. So, I want to sit, though, on verse 19 in this message, and this is our focus today. I thought we'd begin by memorizing the verse. 
It's always good to memorize scripture, isn't it? Maybe to get some of you ready for vacation Bible school this week to do a little scripture memorization. So here's the verse, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Okay, say that with me. We love because he first loved us. I'll say the first clause, you say the second. We love because he first loved us. This side. Balcony. See, we have Christians up in the balcony. We do. Okay, so now there you've memorized a verse at church today. We love because he first loved us. Now, some of you may be noting in that, wait, that sounds a little different than I remember. And I agree with you. Because I learned this verse growing up, we love him because he first loved us. And there are some old translations that translate it that way. And the reason they do is that there, it was obvious something was missing, right? The, 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 it needed an object. The love needed an object. And so some of the ancient manuscripts, they, they kind of wrote in there, him, we love him Because he first loved us. And in a sense, that makes sense, doesn't it? You've got to have an object. If if somebody in your family says, I love you, and you go, and I love. They're like, they're expecting you too, right? It It needs the subject. But that's not what the Greek says. The Greek just says it generically. It certainly includes him. It includes God. But it is the generic we love because he first loved us. So towards God and towards one another. Now the real meat of this verse is in that second clause. Because it explains the causal relationship between me loving and the love of God. We love because... He first loved us. Causal relationship between those two loves. What is the relationship? Here it is. God's love toward us, received and personally believed, creates by the Holy Spirit God's love in us and ultimately through us to others. Let me say that again. God's love toward us in the gospel, in Christ, received and personally believed. This is not just generically true for everybody. It has to be believed. Creates the supernatural, by the Holy Spirit, transformation, where now the sinner loves with the same nature of love that God has given to us. Others. We love because he first loved us. This is a supernatural Work of God by his spirit in salvation. It is, it is so radical, the Bible calls it like being born again. It is new life. It is forgiveness of sins. It is a relationship with God. But what John is emphasizing is, it will always produce love for God and for others. So much so that he can say, if I claim to love God, but I don't love others, liar, faker, 
hypocrite. And that, of course, is never a problem in any local church. Saving faith has the byproduct of love. And the only way that a self-centered sinner, which is the way that all of us are naturally born, we are self-obsessed. The only way that a self-obsessed sinner can, will have his life orient in that agape love way around God and others is for God to do that work. We can't naturally do it. You can, you can sit here today and you can try. It will not produce it. I'm reading, I'm reading Steve Jobs' biography right now. And uh, so into uh, uh, Zen and Hinduism and meditation, trying desperately with diet and other things to receive enlightenment and to become something that he's not. And, and, uh, and yet famous for his cruelty and uh, other things in business and you just see in the examples of this, man can't do it. God has to do it. And God does it through the gospel, okay? By faith, by the Spirit in us. You say, man, you're spending a lot of time on this point, Pastor Steve. Well, it's a big deal. Understanding that God, that salvation is of God and that God loves us and loved us first is the difference for many people between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. It is the difference between religion and Christianity, real, authentic Christianity. Let me show you how. Some of you may remember this old, uh, we used this graphic in a previous message. You, You may remember this, okay? Downward arrows and horizontal arrows. And the point of this was that God loves us and we love others. Okay, very simple, but we all, we all got it sequentially, this is the way that it, that it works. If we do it chronologically, God loved us first. That's what the verse says, right? The fruit of that is that we love others. That's Christianity. Religion does this. Religion says we need to love other people. We need to do good to other people. We need to be about social justice. We need to see the needs in the community around us. We need to reach out and we need to do these things. And if you do them, and if you do them enough, and if you do them long enough, or if you do more of those than you do the bad things, then God loves you and saves you. And there are even churches that claim to be Christian churches that are preaching this weekend. They got the order backwards, right? We need to love. And who does, who does, disagrees with that, right? Yes, the world needs more love. And we need to be loving people. We need to do good things. Who's going to argue that point? Nobody argues that point. But if you get the order wrong, you are not believing in the gospel. Because if, if, if God's love for me is a fruit of my love, or comes after my love, what kind of salvation is it? Now God's love is something that I have earned. I've earned it. And now I can say, God loves me because I'm amazing. 
How wise of God to look down and realize that I am better than almost everybody else that I know. And for him to bestow his amazing love upon an amazing person like me, I'm wonderful. And you see how that is totally getting this whole thing upside down? It is not that we love first and now God loves us. It is that God loved first. And because he loved us and changes us, now we come to be loving. We love because he first loved us. Massive, huge difference. And that is religion. In religion, sinners love others, so God will love them. But in real Christianity, God's love has extended to us. He loves sinners. And we love him because he loved us. So one is performance-based. The other is grace-based. One is something I do and earn. The other is something I receive. It's a gift. One is about me, and the other is about God. And we believe here it's all about him. Salvation begins with God. God takes the initiative. God takes the first step. It is not after we have done good. It is not after we have even believed. It is before all of that. That he has loved us. So I hope you're seeing that clearly. We love because he first loved us. Now let's answer a few basic questions about this. And this is the, where we're going with the message today. When did God love us? Where did God love us? How did God love us? And why did God love us first? So let's begin with the when. When did God love us? Okay, it's one thing to say God loved before we loved him. But when did God love And there is mystery to this. Whenever we talk about God and eternity and the purposes of God, there is mystery to this. I don't completely understand it, and I guarantee you don't completely understand it. But here's what we do know, because God has revealed it to us. Is that before time began, before the creation of the world, God chose to love us. Now, that might throw you for a little bit of a loop because you may say to yourself, oh, wait a second. I didn't even exist back then. How could God love me if I didn't even exist? If I wasn't even a twinkle in my mother's eye, and if my mother wasn't a twinkle in her eye, and if she wasn't a twinkle in her mother's eye, and so forth, how could God Love me before I ever was. Is that too great for God? Can a woman have love in her heart for a future husband she hasn't even met? This past Valentine's Day, my wife Jennifer gave me a very special gift. We got married in August, so this is our first Valentine's married. She gave me a journal in which uh, the very first entry in the journal was February 14th, 2002. And it begins with this, to my dearest husband. And every Valentine's Day, she would write a letter to her future husband. And she gave that to me this last Valentine's Day. Ten years of writing a letter 
to a future husband that she had not met yet, and yet expressing in a love letter a kind of love for him. Can a parent love a child that hasn't arrived yet? If we look at these human loves and we realize that we can have present love for somebody that we don't know or isn't even here yet, how is it so hard for God to love us before we even existed? Is that too hard for God? I don't think so. And God says, I loved you even way back then. Here's where it says it probably most clearly in all the Bible. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved... Christian, look at that. When did God love you? He loved you before he even created all of this. In eternity past, you were an object of the eternal love of God. He chose to love you. He chose to love us. This is the amazing love of God. He chose to adopt us, the passage says. Filing the adoption papers before we're even born. He loved us. And does this not highlight the fact that salvation begins with God? Again, think if this was not the case. Think if God, it says that uh, the verse was, uh, we love because he chose to love us after we showed that we were loving. That was kind of convoluted, but you get what I'm saying. Let's say it wasn't the way that it is. Again, do you realize we would... You think, oh, that would be kind of good because then at least I'd be able to know that I was loving enough. Would you really know if you were loving enough? How could we ever be confident in God's love if it was performance-based? Some of you grew up in homes maybe where your parents had performance-based love for you. And you wondered if they loved you, didn't you? Why? Because you got a B. And you should have got an A. How many A's do I have to have in order for my parents to love me? You would always wonder. We would always wonder if God loved us, if my performance was enough. If he chose to love me, he could choose not to love me. But in order to ensure the fact that we would never doubt that his love is secure and solid, he chose to love us even before we existed. And if he loved you even then, can he not love you now? This is the grace of God. And of course, the cross is a statement of God's love. It is not a statement of our worth and value. It is not a statement that we somehow uh, were lovable and adorable and that God decided to love really lovable, cute, fuzzy, warm people that he decided to save. It is not a statement of our worth. It is a statement of God's amazing mercy and grace and love. We are not amazing people. And yet God chose to love us. When? Before time began. How did God love us? 
He loved us in the midst of our hatred of him, our sin against him. Now, this may look a little confusing to some of us because uh, it doesn't feel that way in our society, does it? I mean, if you were generally, if you were to look at our society and look at around the community, you would say, you know, there's really good-hearted people around here. They're doing life. They're mowing their yards and planting flowers and they go to work and they pay their taxes and they go to the 4th of July parade and they wave the American flag. These are good people. We've got some bad apples. These are the people that cheat and lie and murder and do bad things. There's a few bad apples amongst a sea of good apples. We're good people. Good-hearted, good folk. We Americans were good folk. (laughs) That's how it feels, doesn't it? And that's what the politicians tell us, and that's what schools tell us. And Don't be a bad person, be a good person. Join the rest of us. And yet the perspective of the Bible is not that. It feels that way to us because we are the same as everybody else. The Bible says that we are not good, lovable, huggable, warm and fuzzy little creatures that God chose to love because we're adorable. Rather, the perspective of the Bible is that we are enemies of God. We are rebels against a holy God, that we are sinners, the Bible says. So we are not good people with a few bad people amongst us. We are all bad people because we do not Measure up to the righteous standard of God. You say, what does it take to be a good person? Jesus said this, be holy as I am holy. Anybody here a good person? No. Or be as holy as your heavenly father is holy. Anybody here as holy as God? I don't think so. I know most of you. We are not that holy. We are not that good. And from the perspective of the Bible, we are in moral and spiritual rebellion against God. Famously, here is Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So how did God love us? He loved us in our hatred of him. And in our rebellion against him. Yet he loves us. A God who loves his enemies. Who loves sinners. Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love for us. In that while we were still sinners. And you could put in there enemies. Rebels. Fighters against God, profaners of his name, blasphemers of his glory. Christ died for us. Which also answers the where, by by the way. Where did God love us? And you could say, well, in eternity past, in his affections, in the heart of God, he loved us. But there is one place primarily where God makes it clear that he loves us, and that is the cross. The cross is God's love letter, God's love statement to humanity. That in spite of you killing me, you realize the cross is where mankind kills God. In spite of the fact that you are murdering me, 
I love you. And I will save you. John 15, 13, John also writes, Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. On the cross, Jesus was the friend of sinners. On the cross, he became our friend, our savior, our lover. He died for us. So God loved us by giving of himself for us. And Jesus bore the guilt of our sin upon the cross as the ultimate love letter, the ultimate love statement from God that in spite of our sin, rebellion, hatred, blaspheming of God, I love you. And that cross is a gritty, bloody, sacrificial love statement. There is nothing pretty about it. And yet it is love in its ultimate expression. And so we see in that that our love is a responding love. It is a grateful love. God takes the initiative. He loves us first. We love him and others because he first loved us. Where did he love us? He loved us on the cross. As one individual wrote, From the perspective of God the Father, I will crush my son under the full fury of my righteous wrath for you. In the garden of Gethsemane, my son will cry out for this bitter cup to pass from him, and I will remain silent. Why? Because I love you that much. And when my son utters that shriek on the cross, unlike any protest in all of history, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I will again remain silent. Why? To convince you that I love you. Behold the supreme demonstration of my love, the cross, the death of my son. What more can I say? What else do you require to be convinced of my love for you? What else could God do to show you that he loves you? What more would it take for you to be convinced than for him to die for you? As a friend of sinners. Which leads, I think, finally to the question, why did God love us first? Why did God love us first? Here's why. For the glory of his grace and for our confidence in his eternal love. This is not the question 1 John 4, 19 answers, but it is the question that a sinner who understands the love of God asks, why, God, would you do this for me? Why would you do this for me? I don't deserve this. How did you love me? Why would you love me? And the response is the wonder of Christianity. There is a wonder to the faith that we believe and practice. We do not have this figured out. There is a gratefulness. There's a grace. There's a a wondering that we have that God would love people like us. And if you ever meet a Christian who doesn't have that wonder, they are also a liar. We never get over the fact that God would love someone like us, someone like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. 
We sing it this way here as well. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When the sinner comes to realize our sin before God and how we have personally violated his will and purpose, that I have not only disappointed God, I have rebelled against God. When I come to realize my standing and my helplessness before a holy, mighty, awesome God, and yet he extends to me in my sin and in my guilt kindness and love and mercy and sends his son to die on the cross on my behalf, taking the initiative to save me, it produces this wonder and this awe that God would love me. This is the humility of Christianity. This is the humility of genuine Christians. A humble love then that responds to this amazing love from God by loving him and by loving my brothers and sisters is a wonderful evidence that I have received the grace of God. And that is why love and non-love, love and hate, are such clear indicators of who has tasted of the grace of God and who has not. It's easy to see where love comes from, or I'm sorry, hate comes from, but love, this kind of love, only comes from God and is only produced by the Holy Spirit. We naturally would never love others this way. So Christian, he loves you. Think of that today. He loved you before time began. He has loved you for all eternity. And if he loved you when you hated him, how much more does he love you now that you love him and are his adopted child? Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. He will always love you. Always. When the sun's shining down on me and the world is as it should be, blessed be your name. And when I am going through the trial and when I am going through the trouble and when I am laying on my deathbed taking my last breath, then he shall love me. And when I step into glory and see him with my own eyes for the first time, then he shall show the fullness of his love. It is an eternal love before time began, in the present, and for all eternity, so that nobody could think that maybe he loved me because I'm so lovable. We love because he first Loved us. God takes the initiative. It doesn't necessarily feel that way for us sometimes. You might be here and think, you know what? I, I sort of feel like I'm the one seeking God. I'm looking for truth. I'm trying to find my way. This is illustrated in a, in a, in a story that uh, one author uh, relates. He tells the story of a little, a little girl who lived on the edge of a tangled and thick forest. And they lived in this house. And one day she said, you know, I've never seen what's inside this forest. I think I'm going to go check it out. And so the little girl in her blue dress goes wandering into the forest. 
And she, you know, chases the butterfly here and the creek here and, and, and runs through the meadow there. And it's not very long before she's looking around and she realizes, I have no idea where I am. Well, her dad realizes, where's my little girl? And calls his friends and family and says, we, my, my little girl, they see footsteps that go off into the, into the forest. She's gone into the forest. Let's go find her. So all the search party gets together and they look and they look and they look. And they look and they look and they look. They look into the night. They cannot find her. Finally, in the wee hours of the night, they call off the search until morning. Early the next morning, dad gets up. He's the first one out. He goes into the forest. He's running around. He's trying to find his little girl. When off in the corner, out of the corner of his eye, he spies a little blue dress. And racing towards her, arms out wide, he runs to embrace his daughter. And his daughter turns and sees him coming and shouts out with great joy, Daddy, I found you. To the little girl, it feels like she found him. But we know in the bigger story that it was he who found her. And in Christianity and in salvation, we can read the books. We can go to the religious seminars. We can major in philosophy at the school. We can act like we're the one that's doing the seeking. But in the big picture, it is a story about God who is seeking and saving the lost. So that he receives the glory, we receive the good. And it is an expression of his love. We love him because he first loved us. So much to rejoice in. Amen? Amen.